This podcast is brought to you by Whites Ferry Road Church. For more information, please visit WFRChurch.org. All right. Are we recording, Zach? Okay. Well, we're. I'm going to pass these out while we're waiting. Um, one of the guys I like to read a lot and studies his work is a guy named um, William Lane Craig. And uh, he does a podcast series from his church in Atlanta that he, te- he t- does a Sunday school class there. And he goes through all these different doctrines. And uh, the one he does on the Trinity, can, when you look at that with, with the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son, it's literally about 40 hours worth of material, which we don't have that long. So um, a lot of the, the one he does on the Holy Spirit is, is pretty uh, extensive. So um, we won't be able to cover all of the attributes and aspects of the Holy Spirit, not, not in the scope of this class. But I'm reminded of, a, and I'm probably going to butcher this quote from Martin Luther, who said something to the effect of, if we, if we fight on all the battlefields, except for the one where, the, where Satan is attacking at this moment in culture, he says, we're not really fighting at all. Um, he said, it's, it's more of a disgrace. And uh, if we flinch at that moment, it's a disgrace. We need to be, in other words, we need to be where the battle's going on at. So where is Satan attacking in 2015? Um, I, wanna, I, I really think that this class will cover that. I think that we will probably talk about, in my opinion, the most fundamental battle right now inside, the, inside and outside the church. And you just spilled your coffee and almost ruined that. You did that on purpose? <laughs> yeah, good job. Um, so, so when we talk about the Holy Spirit throughout the next few weeks, we're going we're gonna to discuss some of the attributes, but we're going to mainly talk about what I think is the, is the main role of the Holy Spirit today in our lives and what it means for us. Uh, what is his main purpose? What is his main role? Um, and we'll hit some of the other a- aspects of it as well. But we're going to stick with the major, the major theme of what I believe uh, his, his, his role is today. The reason why I gave you these handouts, um, this is just a good reference that you can go through and look at all the different uh, scriptures that talk about the Holy Spirit, uh, His names, uh, what is He called, uh, God, Lord, Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Truth, the Eternal Spirit. Um, it goes through His attributes. He's eternal. He's uh, omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He, um, he loves. He speaks. Uh, then you have the symbols of, of the Holy Spirit, which would be the dove that, that landed on bodily form on Jesus. Whenever he got baptized by John the Baptist, uh, he manifests himself as wind. Uh, If you you remember in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, uh, as Phil calls it, blowtorches on people's head. Um, The Bible says it was tongues of fire. Uh, Sins against the Holy Spirit, which would be blasphemy, resisting him. We will talk about this, as a matter of fact. I'm going to do a whole week on resisting the Spirit or sinning against the Spirit. uh, let's see what else. Uh, the uh, insulting him, quenching him, grieving him, um, and then uh, and then uh, it has some some scriptures in here about the power of the Spirit in Christ's life. Um, you know, Jesus Christ Himself was conceived of the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, you know, when he was baptized, Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, he was led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you, um, as, uh, as Troll pointed out last week, it was the Spirit of Christ that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit. Um, and also, um, when Jesus performed miracles, that was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joanne sent me an email this week uh, asking about these manifestations of God in the Old Testament, and we were discussing whether or not that was the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, she said, it certainly wasn't Jesus. And, and I said, I agree with you. It wasn't Jesus because Jesus didn't come on the scene until about 2,000 years ago. Jesus is the manifest. He was the, he was the incarnation or is the incarnation of the Son. So when you talk about Jesus, he really d- didn't apply in the Old Testament, but the Son or the Word or the Logos did. And I think that when you see these, these, uh, th- this imagery in the Old Testament of God appearing to man, I believe that that was the Son. Um, I believe that was, was the Word, the Logos. Um, so anyway, so then down here, down here um, below that, it talks about uh, different works of the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit, we have access to God. He anoints for service. Um, he assures. He authors Scripture. You know, we know that all Scriptures God breathes. He baptizes. Uh, he calls for commission, cleanses, convicts of sin, creates, empowers, fills, gives gifts, glorifies Christ, guides in truth, helps us in our weakness, and dwells the believer, inspires, intercedes, interprets Scripture. He leads, liberates, molds character, produces fruit, empowers believer, raises the dead, regenerates, sanctifies, seals, strengthens, teaches, testifies of Jesus, victory over the flesh, and he's a worship helper. Um, so we could spend, obviously, with that many attributes of the Holy Spirit and that many works of the Holy Spirit, we could probably spend an entire year and still not come close to covering it. But we will cover an aspect that has fundamentally changed my life. And it's one of the reasons why I want you guys to get the book, um, True Spirituality by Frances Schaefer. We've already, she's already got her copy. If you don't uh, know how to get it online, I'll, let me know and I'll get you a copy. Um, but a lot of the stuff that, some of the stuff I've already talked about came out of there. And a lot of the, a lot of the stuff I will talk about comes out of that book. Um, and, and, and I was just mentioning that it was that work of Schaefer's that, Help me reconcile a lot of things about Christianity that I couldn't reconcile intellectually, such as when someone would get baptized and they would, and I always remember people would, and I would say this, I would say, you know, you're going to be forgiven for all your sins, past, future, and present. And of course, the inevitable question is, well, well, if, if I can be, if I'm going to be forgiven for all my future sins, then what? Why don't I just go out and sin all I want, right? It's the same thing they asked Paul. And, 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 or the, well, Paul asked the rhetorical question in Romans chapter 6. After he got through a Romans 5, he, he said, look, Romans 5 is basically Paul saying, look, the Holy Spirit or, the, or, or God's grace is so amazing that the more you sin, the more grace you get. Now, every time I share the gospel with somebody, I, I'll, I'll share that, that, that passage with them in Romans 5, and I'll, and I'll, I'll just stop. And I'll say, like, what do you think about that? Is that not amazing? And they'll go, that's awesome. And I'll say, does anything strike you as odd about that? And every time they say, yeah. And I say, what's odd about that statement? Well, I mean, it sounds like I can go out there and sin all I want and get more grace. And I said, I'm glad you asked, said that and brought that question up. Because Paul answers it in the very first verse of Romans chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? 
shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means we die to sin. How can we live it any longer? Well, you know, I would share this with people and I would tell them, you know, look, when you become a Christian, you're forgiven all your sins and you're going to sin again and you'll be forgiven for that. The point is, is just to do your best. Just get back up. Just do your best. That's what it's about now. You know, you're not under the law anymore. Just do your best. But that didn't sit well with me because when I thought about when I sinned post-Christianity, this is after I have obeyed the gospel, this is after I have given my life to Jesus and accepted his grace, I still sinned after that. And I got to thinking, when I sinned, you know what I wasn't doing? My best. So I'm telling people to go do their best, but if you sin, you're not doing your best. So what am I really saying? What does that really mean, do your best? The point is, that's the whole problem. You can't do your best. That's why you need a Savior, right? And I never could reconcile how one could be saved, and it's not about your works, but you still got to work. And I never could really explain that until I understood the teaching of the Holy Spirit. And you will get it at the end of, probably tonight, and definitely by the end of the six weeks, uh, you'll, you'll understand exactly how that makes sense. And it will empower you, and it will empower the believer, and, and anyone who, and, and when you share it with people, it's a lot more, um, I don't want to say sellable, but it's a lot more powerful to tell somebody that they can actually experience healing. Now, a couple things I want to recap. Last week, we talked about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All three of these are are co-equal members, co-equal persons of this triune God. They're a, they're a relationship, uh, the, the, a relationship that is so perfect that it actually is one being. There are three. You don't ever want to get on the side of one or the other. You don't ever want to. You don't ever want to diminish the unity of the triune God. You never want to do that. If you diminish the unity, you know what you end up with: polytheism or some type of of, of pantheistic worldview or polytheistic worldview. You end up with a different God than what we have. But on the flip side of the same token, you also don't want to diminish the personhood and the, the distinctions of these three persons within inside the Trinity. And it's been very difficult throughout the history of the church to either err on one side or the other. And if you, you end up erring on one side or the other, you'll end up like, as you see in your notes uh, that I handed out, uh, like a cult like the Jehovah Witnesses that say that the Holy Spirit is nothing more than a force. Um, and, 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 and he's not. The Holy Spirit, he is a person. Each person within inside the triune God is bent on bringing glory 100% to the other members. That's why God is love, because each person is fully loving the other two person, persons within the Trinity. And this will be important to understand as we talk about this uh, later on. Um, and then also we, we mentioned salvation. You know, I think we have a, a narrow view of salvation sometimes. You know, we tend to think only about justification, getting justified, getting freed from the guilt of sin, Right? And we teach a lot about baptism in the church. And we say, you got to get them in the water. we got to baptize them. And, uh, and, I, and let me tell you something. I've been guilty of that myself where, like, I will, I will sell you on baptism and I'll forget to even tell you about the gospel. We're not doing anything when we do that. Baptism, is, it, it, it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh, as Peter, it says in Peter. It's the pledge of a good conscience towards God. And it saves you by the resurrection. And by the way, what, who, who, who was the one that raised Jesus from the dead? The Holy Spirit. So there's a key part there. Um, the other day I, I was meeting with a, a young guy who has been struggling. I say struggling. He's 
abandon his faith in Jesus. If, I don't know if he ever had his faith in Jesus, but he is adopting more of a, Buddha, a Buddhist-type idea about the world. Uh, his worldview is very, uh, very Eastern, uh, and there is no truth. Everything is relative. You, do, you have your truth. I have my truth. Uh, just really a smart guy, really smart guy. And um, I saw his, his, his mother or grandmother. I, I'm not sure exactly how they're related, but uh, I was walking in, and she, and she was telling me about this young man. And, and uh, I said, well, is he a Christian? And she said, well, he's been baptized. You ever heard anybody say that? Oh, yeah, yeah, he's been baptized. That's not what I asked. Is he a Christian? Because, you know, I got baptized when I was 13 years old. And uh, let me tell you, I was not a Christian at 13 years old. I mean, I lived a pretty horrible life from about 13 till about 21 until I became a Christian and gave my, put my faith in Jesus, right? So... Um, I think in the Church of Christ, especially, but but and a lot of churches do this. I mean, you know, uh, the, uh, a lot of denominations they they have their their little moment of salvation, and that's all they focus on, and that's this thing called justification. Um, when that moment that you're justified before God and you're saved, when did, when did you get saved? I got saved when I was. I mean, you tell the story, right? Well, that's only part of salvation. The Bible teaches that there actually uh, salvation is, is, is more than just that moment in which you are saved from the guilt of sin. By guilt here, I don't mean guilty feelings. And Schaefer talks about this in the book. It's not uh, the, 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 the way we think about guilt in today's culture. In today's culture, when we think about guilt, I'm thinking about I feel guilty for whatever. For whatever happened to me in the past, that's something I did 10 years ago, or whatever. I feel guilty because I lied to my wife or now, it's not guilty feelings. This is guilt like I stand guilty before the judge. I plead guilty. The judge says, you're not guilty anymore. It's, it's, it's more of a legal, a legal thing. Where, so you're actually justified in a court. Not, and it's a court of law. It really is. It's, 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 you're justified by the blood of Christ, and this is what we call being saved, right? Well, there's also two other aspects of salvation, sanctification and glorification. Sanctification, where justification is, is freedom from the guilt of sin, Sanctification is freedom from the power of sin. So I can be, I can be guilty and then, I, and then my guilt's wiped clean. I'm not guilty anymore, but yet somehow sin still has a power in my life. And, and there's things that like, just because I, I became a Christian, it doesn't mean that, that the struggle my, with alcohol is gone overnight. I'm not like, I, I don't go get baptized and come out of the water and like, man, I was an alcoholic five seconds ago and now I'm completely healed. It doesn't work that way. Sin can still have a power. You can be saved. You can be justified. And sin, sin still has a power over your life, right? Well, as we move through this process of sanctification, we can find freedom not only from the guilt of sin, we can find freedom from the power of sin. It can loosen its grip over our lives. Um, Schaefer uses the term substantial a lot in the book, substantial healing or substantial sanctification, meaning it's, you're never going to get to the point where you're completely sanctified. I'm never going to get to a point on this side of heaven where, um, where sin has no power over my life. But I can experience a great deal of healing while I'm here. And that's good news because when you see someone that's broken and you, t and you can show them that in the gospel not only can they be forgiven in terms of guilt, but they can actually have power, freedom from the power of sin over their life, that's something they can experience now. And that's huge. I was talking with Jill. Uh, uh, we were talking about some of the folks we worked with over at university. And, and um, 
it's just incredible. Some of their stories, most of their stories are, they're so horrible. I mean, they really are. I just, and, I, and, the, and I, when I see these young kids now, when I see how they're living, it blows me away to see how God, via the power of the Holy Spirit, has progressively sanctified and is sanctifying them, and there is a substantial healing going on. And, and, and we, well, that's something we want to see in our churches, right? We want to see the power. Look at CR. Look at some of the things that are going on in people's lives, and you see brokenness being, being healed. And, and one day, there will be a day, though, where we will be totally free from the power of sin in our life. And that day will be the day we're glorified. When Jesus comes back and our, our, we'll have these glorified bodies, we will be freed from the presence of sin. We'll be freed from the presence of it. So glorification is freedom saved from the presence of sin. And this is the all-encompassing salvation that the Bible teaches. And this is key to understanding because if we understand what sin is, sin is nothing more. We've got to change the way we, we think about sin. Um, sin is nothing more than calling God a liar. That's what it is. That's sin. That's, it's just me saying, no, nah, God, you're lying. Just like I mentioned last week in the Garden of Eden, when Satan came on the scene and he crafted the lie, what was he basically saying? God lied to you. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. He's holding out on you. Of course he doesn't want you to eat that fruit. You eat that fruit, you're going to be like him. What he's saying is God lied to you. Eve believed it. So she, by believing that lie, she basically looked God in the face and said, you're a liar. So the root of sin is, a, is, is, is the, the root word we need to mention here is lie, liar. It's, 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 it is a built upon a lie, okay? You've got to grasp that so we understand the Holy Spirit. The root of sin is, is that it's rooted in a lie. That's why they say, the Bible says that the devil is the father of all lies, right? So it starts with a lie. So when we talk about glorification, the reason why we'll be freed from the power of sin in heaven, and the people ask this question sometimes, you know, well, if, if, if I have free will here and I use it to sin, then why, what's going to prevent me from sinning in heaven? Have you ever thought that? Like, like what, what's going to be different about heaven? I still have a choice, right? Yeah, you do have a choice. The difference is, in heaven, there will be no more lies. Satan will not have the power to lie anymore because God will be revealing himself in such a powerful manner as there, you, Satan will have no, no way to lie. He's not going to say, yeah, God's not really there. And I'm going to say... Are you looking at the same thing I'm looking at? I, with all the thousands and millions of angels worshiping, and we're all, you know, the lie will be defeated. There will be no way to lie because we'll be in the presence of God. And because of that, uh, their sin will not have a power over us because there will be no more lies. We'll be free from the presence of it, and, and consequently, we won't, obviously won't have any guilt as well. So, let's do this. Um, tonight, I'm going to go through quite a bit of Scripture um, I can find my notes. That would help. Yeah, there we go. Did everybody get one of these? All right, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. We're gonna go through quite a bit of scripture, and then we'll take a break about uh, in about 30 minutes, and then we'll uh, well about 40 minutes, and then we'll 
we'll come back at it. Um, introduction here. So Ben Atkins, my brother-in-law, calls me up last week. And he said, Zach, he said, I'm doing a survey with the youth group. Do you have any questions that you, want me, you think I should ask? And, uh, and it's one of these anonymous surveys. Ben's kind of like an IT nerd. And he, any like little gimmick or app that he can find, he wants to use it in ministry. And he's great at that. He just always got a knickknack. So he's found some app where you can do anonymous surveys through their t- cell phones. And it's t- completely anonymous. So he asks questions like, uh, are you sexually active? Is smoking pot a sin? You know, these questions that teens would deal with. Well, I asked the question, what do you call a belief that you have for which you have no reason to believe it's true and it's void of fact? So what do you, what, what do you call a belief that you, that you hold that you have no reason to believe it to be true and that it's completely void of fact? Okay? 90% of the, the kids in the youth group, I, I think it was about 15 kids, they answered they were the same word. What word do you think they chose? Huh? No. Huh? Faith. Faith. Let me write that word up here. Faith. 90% of the kids who took the survey in our youth group, when asked the question, what do you call a belief that you hold that you have no reason to believe it's true and it's completely void of fact? What is that word called? 90% of our youth said faith. Now, that's very, very troubling to me. It's, it, but I don't want you to think it's a problem with our church because it's not. I knew they would answer that way. 90% of the people in America believe this. They believe that faith is the word that you use to describe something when you don't have a reason to believe it's true. Now, I would argue with that and say that's not faith, that's stupidity to believe in something that you have no reason to believe is true. Don't do that. Don't, if you have no reason to believe something to be true, don't believe in it. That doesn't make any sense to me. But... For a long time in my life, let me tell you something, that's how I viewed it. And it wasn't until that I had a proper view of faith that I was liberated, that my mind was liberated from that captivity. So faith and salvation, let's talk about this word faith for a second. Uh, 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 if you got uh, your Bibles with you uh, in your pens, write this verse down. You can turn there. Ephesians 2.8. Um, some, of this, some of these verses, I'm just going to, I mean, I'm going to move fast. I mean, I literally have so much scripture to go through tonight that I need to, I need to probably quit talking so much. Um, so the word faith, let's talk about it. Faith and salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through what? Through faith. You're saved through faith by grace. And this is not from yourselves, it's a gift from God. Um, in 1 Peter 1.8, it, it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, comma, the salvation of your souls. 
So what is the end, what is the end result of faith? The salvation of your souls. All right? You're saved through faith. Salvation of your souls is the end result of faith. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, which is considered the theme of the New Testament, says, for, and you guys probably know this verse, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness from God is revealed. And by the way, we've got to be righteous to get to heaven. But it is a righteousness... That is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So what is faith? If, if we think like the folks in the survey thought in the youth group that faith is nothing more than a belief in something that you have no reason to believe is true or, or, or faith is, is something completely devoid of fact. It's, it's, we, don't, we can't really know it to be true. Well, this can have serious implications because as we just read in these three scriptures, faith is an integral part of salvation. Right? You can't have one without the other. So what is faith? What does the Bible say that faith is? Well, Hebrews 11, verse 1 and 2. The Hebrew writer says that faith, now faith is confidence in what we hope for. And it is assurance about what we do not see. And this is what the ancients were commended for. So it's, uh, one, one translation said it's, it's the substance of things unseen or the evidence of things unseen. It's the substance of things that, that, that are hoped for. So when you think about the word faith and you understand what the Hebrew writer was saying here, it is something that you can put your teeth into. It's contentful, which I don't know if it's an actual word, as opposed to contentless. I don't think it's a word either. Well, we'll make it a word. Uh, Schaefer uses the word contentless in, in one of his books a lot. Uh, the book is called in The God Who Was There. And, and we're going we're gonna to actually go through some of that material as well next week. But faith is contentful. It's meaningful as opposed to meaningless. It's, uh, it has substance as opposed to being, uh, what's the opposite of substance? Uh, devoid. It's, 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 not, um, it's not abstract. It's something that's almost tangible. Uh, now, you may not be able to see it. You may not be able to see God physically, but that doesn't mean that it's unknowable. So most importantly, faith is knowable. It's knowable as opposed to unknowable. Now, when we use this word knowable, um, I want you to think about the, uh, obviously the word that comes to mind there is the word, the word knowledge. Okay? So we think about this word knowledge. And this word can be used in several different ways and it is in Scripture, right? Uh, in fact, the Bible says that knowledge, what does it do to people? It puffs up. So, what is he talking about there? Is, so, we, should we not seek knowledge if it puffs up? Well, that's one kind of knowledge in terms of like, look, I went and studied all this stuff and I learned quantum physics and quantum mechanics and I'm an I'm a astro and I, just, and I built all this knowledge up and I think I'm so smart. It's not, that's not the kind of knowledge that, that I'm talking about here in Scripture. And there, and there is a knowledge like that, right? And, there, and, and that's not necessarily bad to learn stuff. I mean, I love to study but what I'm talking about is knowing something to be true. 
So knowledge, this is how I've defined it in the context of this class. And by the way, the, here's one of the difficult things about, um, about when we're teaching class, uh, a class like this. Let me get some coffee real quick. Our culture has, uh, uh, in any culture, has words that we use and uh, they're connotation words that over time the, the enemy will hijack our language and then turn it around and use it to promote something that is completely evil. Such as, and I actually wrote a, a little Facebook on this today. Uh, I don't know if y'all saw Lisa's interview with the Huffington Post, and she said she was pro-choice. And, I, and, I, and as soon as I saw it, I was like, she is not pro-choice. I don't, she don't realize what they just did to her. I, I'm sitting there looking at it thinking, they just got her. And after the interview was over, she's like, I think I just told them I was pro-choice. And she's not. Uh, but think about the term pro-choice for, for, for a second here. I mean, who's not for choice, right? I mean, I'm for, I think people should be able to choose to live their lives like they want to live. I don't think that we should live under some authoritarian rule of a, of a tyrant. But see, the enemy and our, our, our opponents on this uh, debate for life, they're not going to come out and say they're pro-abortion. So what they do is they, t- they take our language, one of the attributes that makes us like God, we talked about that last week, is our free will, right? They take that and they change it and they use it for something that it wasn't meant for. Um, if, if, if there's a lot of, of liberation theology movements out there right now that are going on. They take Christian language, they hijack it, and they use it for their own. And we've got to be careful about this too. We've we got to constantly seek ways to redefine words um, and to put them in proper context because what happens is words lose meaning over time. And we, our job as communicators of the gospel is, is, is to how do we keep communicating this same message in, in different cultures. So when I define the word knowledge here, I define it as information about reality. Okay? Knowledge is information about reality that has been acquired by a person. It's information about reality that has been acquired by a person. Now, the word knowledge can be used in several ways, uh, as I mentioned earlier, but in, in the context of this class, it will be Information about reality that has been acquired by a person. Now, there's another word that comes up when we talk about knowledge in this way, and that word is truth. You have your truth and I have my truth is what we're told, right, in our culture, uh, which would be a term for that is called postmodernism or postmodernity, which is that truth is relative, meaning that it depends on your perception of it. Truth is in the eye of the what? Yeah. Whoever holds it, well, this is my truth, and you're holding your truth, and for me, this is true. For you, that's true. Uh, perception is... Another answer to that? Perception is reality. Perception is reality is what we're told, right? Um, the truth is, is that reality is reality. If you walk into your... And I can prove this, by the way. Uh, if you walk into your closet your medicine closet or cabinet, depending on how many medicines you take, you have a closet or a cabinet. Yeah. I'm a drug... I used to be a drug rep, so I, had a, I actually had a medicine storage room. You walk into your medicine storage room and, and you walk in there and you see a bottle of Tylenol and you see a bottle of rat poisoning. Now, let's say you perceive the rat poisoning to be the Tylenol and you take, you take a few. Now, is perception reality in that moment or is reality reality? Yeah, reality sinks in, right? You take the poison, you end up getting sick, and you possibly die. 
this young young kid the other day was telling me that, that perception is reality and it is what you make of it. And, and if you perceive it to be true, then it is true for you. I said, so you're telling me if I, and I was up there on, at, at, outside his office at the top of World Radio. I said, so if I go to that window and I open that window up and I perceive that I can fly and I jump out of that building, you're telling me I'm going to fly. He said, hey, if, if, if you think you're going to fly, you're going to fly. I said, prove it. Because he also said he could choose his reality, too. I said, well, choose it. I'm sure you, sure you want to fly. Go prove it. Of course, you can't prove that, right? You jump by the window, what's going to happen? Gravity takes over. Reality kicks in, and boom, you hit the floor. You're, or you hit the ground. You're dead. So truth is not based on perception. Truth, here's another definition for you, in the terms of this class will be the matching of our thoughts With reality. The matching of our thoughts with reality. So when our thoughts match reality. Truth is the matching of our thoughts with reality. Let me give you an example of this. Um, I knew coming into this room tonight, based on what Zach told me, that he was going to have this little lapel mic that he had bought. Because he told me. He said, I bought a, a, a lapel mic for you to wear. It will be easier for you to teach. And I, and, and I knew in my mind, I was thinking, my thought was, he's going to have, and he sends me a text, I got this mic, come in here so I can get you hooked up. So my thought was, when I walk in there, there's going to be this lapel mic in here when I get in here. So I got in here, and guess what he had? The reality was, he, there was actually a lapel mic, and he had it in here. So my thought matched up with reality. So, in other words, I arrived at this thing called truth. Right? That's, that, that's called truth. It was true that he had a lapel mic. Now, had he not had it in there, I don't care what I thought coming in here, I wouldn't arrive at truth because my thought at that moment would not have matched up with what was real, the way the world really is. So truth is this matching of our thought with reality. Now, you can have truths that are, are perception-based, but they still have to match reality. I'll give you another example. Um, I, I've done this with a youth group before. I learned this from uh, Sean McDowell. Um, he, bring, he brings in a, a jar of uh, Starburst. This is my jar right here. And he has these little Starbursts. You guys know what Starbursts are? They're like a candy. Um, and and they got a red one. They've got a pink one. They've got orange. They've got different colors. And he asked the teens the question. I've done the same thing. I said, what is the best? And I'll have that jar in there. I'll say, what is the best flavor of Starburst? And... You, they'll, they'll go nuts. They'll say red, yellow, and they'll, they'll start screaming out different colors. And, uh, and it's funny to get them started up, right? And I'll, you know, I'll hold the thing up and I'll say, whoever picks the best one, whoever's right on this gets $100 because no one's right. So, uh, or everybody's right, rather. You know, everybody's right. So maybe I shouldn't say that anymore because I have to give everybody $100. Because the truth is, if you think that red is the best flavor, and you think, and Bobby says, no, I think that yellow is the best flavor, well, who's right? Well, for, for Bobby... Yellow would be the best flavor, and for you, it would be the red, the red color. Now, that's what's called, that, that is a truth that is, is subject to your, to your interpretation. But now, if I, if I ask you the next question, well, how many, how many starbursts are in the jar? Now, all of a sudden, we're, we're talking about something that's objectively true. It's true independent of your perception of it. doesn't matter what you think. Right? This jar that I drew on the board has four. So if you said six and you said eight, Nobody's right. 
Because it, your, whatever you said, your thought did not match up with the reality of how many are actually in here. So truth is something we arrive at when our thoughts match up with the way that the world really is. So I want you to take everything I just told you about knowledge and about truth and put that on the shelf, and then we're going to come back to it in a second. And while you're putting it on that shelf, uh, you can turn to John. Um, turn to John 14. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, and especially in the role of the believer's life today, I don't think you can make any real case unless we go back to what Jesus said. Because what Jesus told us in John 14 through John 17, he basically spent three and a half chapters on this subject. Um, he's telling the believers, which would be us included, about the Holy Spirit which he is about to send, okay? So Jesus is about to send the Holy Spirit. I think if we want to know what the main purpose of the Holy Spirit is, I think that we'll, I, I think it, it's logical to think that we could probably go to the words of Jesus before he sent the Holy Spirit to see what he said the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming was going to be. And he spent, he spent about three, three and a half chapters on this. And, and this this. Three chapters, I'm going to read almost all, all, of the, all of these three chapters tonight, hopefully. In this are the keys to understanding the, the role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life today. John 14, verse 15. We'll start there. Let me make sure I, I got that right. I'm going to get my Bible out for this one. John 14 through... Let's see, what did I say? Verse 15. Okay, yeah. He says, If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you, and, and he will be with you forever. The Spirit, and that's a capital S, by the way, of what? So now we see this word truth that we just talked about. Truth. And you've got to start thinking about truth in this way of, of a matching of thought with reality. So we have reality out there. And then my thoughts and how do I match all that up? Well, Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to send you a counselor. What does a counselor do, by the way? He gives you advice, right? And, 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 and guides you and, um, and, and, and tries to get you to see things in a way that maybe you're not seeing them. I mean, Randy's wife, Janelle, is a, a, a very well-respected marriage and family therapist and and I, I, I have friends that have gone to, 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 uh, to her for counseling. And, and uh, most of the time when they tell me the things that she tells them, I'm, it's like she, what she's doing is, is basically trying to tell them about reality. Like they're living under some delusion, and it's the job or the role. of I think a good therapist is going to try to get that, that patient or person to see that. Well, we have a counselor that Jesus promised us, an advocate, the spirit of truth. The world can accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. So here's, here's another word. Know. Knowledge. You know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. And on that day, you'll realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. 
And by the way, we're going to talk about these commandments of God. Probably not tonight, but when you think about the commandments of God, um, the Bible also teaches that these commandments are not burdensome. Okay? So if we live out our Christian... That's what he's saying here. He's talking about if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But I will make the case by the end of this series that if you are begrudgingly following the commandments of God, then you're probably not being led by the Spirit. I'm not saying you're not justified, but you're certainly not being sanctified. Okay? If you're begrudgingly following the commandments of God, if it's one of these things where I'm like, man, I'm not going to cheat on Jill today, but, oh, man, I want to. I mean, I'm just, I'm not going to do it, but, boy, I want to. You know what I mean? Man, I'm missing out. Can you imagine what my relationship with her would be like if, if I was, the only reason why I wasn't sleeping with other women was because I knew she would get mad. Can you imagine? Do you think we'd have a good marriage? No, of course we wouldn't. In the same way with God, uh, he's not seeking your begrudging submission. What he's looking for is, is real faith here and a real relationship. And there's these commandments. When he talks about keeping these commandments, he's not talking about it in a begrudging way. So whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and he will come to them and make, uh, make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Another, by the way, everything proceeds from the Father, including the Spirit. The Son and the Spirit proceed from the Father. They're not less in value. Remember that. When we talk about the ontological trinity, they're not less in value, but the economic trinity, they're in different roles. And it's the same thing, by the way, with gender. We're not in a lesser role. We have different roles, but but we're equal in value. And that's a, that's a good way to, to, to make that analogy. All of this I've spoken while with you, but 26, verse 26, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, so the Father sends the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I said to you. So we get this idea that whatever this, the Holy Spirit, when He comes... Jesus is saying, look, I've got to go. I'm, the, I'm about to leave you guys. And this must have been pretty tough for, for, the, for the disciples because they thought, they were thinking initially of a victorious Savior. They weren't thinking of, of this humiliated Jesus, the guy who's getting hung on a cross. They had no concept of that, right? To the fact that when the guards came to arrest Jesus, what did Peter do? He drew his sword, went to cut off his ear. So when he's telling them that I'm about to leave, I don't even think they were fully grasping what he was saying here. But he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit from the Father, and he is going to teach you all things. And then we skip down to John 15, verse 26, and he says, when the advocate comes, and by the way, again, that's a capital A. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit. Whom I will send to you from the Father, repeating where he's coming from, the spirit of truth, to be repetitive, the spirit of truth, remember truth is matching thought with reality, who goes out from the Father, this is where he's coming from, he, by the way, right there we could do a whole lesson on the personhood of the Holy Spirit. He is a person. Didn't say it. He says he, what's he going to do? He's going to testify about me. 
talking about Jesus. So I love this because because Jesus is like the whole thing is like he's like glorifying the Father here. You kind of get that like he's coming from the Father. That's I'm, I'm here representing the Father. When the Spirit comes, he's going to point everybody to me. And so you kind of get this picture of the of the triune God up here, where 100 percent the Son is pouring out to the to the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit 100 percent is poured out to the Father and the Son. The Father is 100 percent poured out to the Son and the Spirit. So you, you, you get glimpses of this trinity when Jesus talks and about this holy relationship called, called what we call God. He'll testify about me, and you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So, why did Jesus tell them these things about the Holy Spirit? Now think about this question. Why did Jesus tell the disciples these things about the Holy Spirit? Well, in verse 1 of 16, we're going to read the first 16 verses of chapter 16. He says, all of this I have told you so that you will not fall away. Now, my brain is like chasing rabbits because I want to stop there. I'm not going to, but I'd love to just chase that for a little while because I do believe when you read those passages in Hebrews 6 and when you read that passage in Hebrews 10, and when you read that passage in, what is it, Second Peter 2.19, about a dog returning to its vomit, um, there is a danger that the believer can reject the Holy Spirit once he's received it. He's received the Holy Spirit. The Hebrew writer says it's impossible, we'll read in a little bit, for those who have, who have tasted the Holy Spirit, who've shared the Holy Spirit, if they reject him, it's impossible for that person to be brought back to repentance. And I'll explain why later. And I also link that verse up with the verse about blasting the Holy Spirit when Jesus said, you can, no, you can speak a word against the Son of Man, but you do what these Pharisees did. And when, when, when we're performing miracles right here, I'm performing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they're saying it's from the devil. That's the ultimate rejection of truth. That's what it is. It's a rejection of truth. It's saying putting your fingers in your ears, and I'm not going to hear it. We'll talk about that when we go through this whole idea of quenching. But, but, but the, one of the main purposes of sanctification is that you're being released from the power of sin, right? Sin is what? Calling God a liar. So essentially you're being released from the power of a lie, which you can say you're being brought into the knowledge of truth. Okay? This is one of the... That's why he's the spirit of truth. He's revealing truth to us about reality. He says... And, 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 and you don't want to reject truth because you can fall away, and, and Jesus mentions that here. They do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to the one who sent me. Again, everything proceeds from the Father. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I said these things. So when we were imagining a few moments ago about what the apostles must have felt like and the disciples, well, obviously they were grieving what Jesus was saying. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate, capital A, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay, now think about this verse here. He's going to prove the world wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. So, they don't believe in Jesus. 
he convicts the world of sin. Justification. Whenever you're convicted about your sin, whenever you're, uh, whenever you're called, as, as, as some would say, it is the Holy Spirit who calls you. And I believe that everybody's called. At some point in your life, and maybe multiple times, I know that I've been called. I, I remember the moment I was called. I was down there at Phil and Kay's house, and me and Jeff had just got into, a, I say not got into some trouble, we had just got caught doing what we had been doing for several months and maybe years. And I remember in that moment, um, my parents had already found out, and it was, you know, the, the shame of all that and how we had been living. And, my, of course, my mother was devastated about me living in that way. And I was down there in, in Jep's bedroom, and, uh, and I remember after talking to my dad on the phone because they were back in Florida, um, I just turned myself in. I was tired of running. And it was, I mean, it was God. The Holy Spirit just called me. He said, it's time to quit that. It's time to come be with me. And I remember, and people have heard other people describe it like this, it was like a literal weight lifted off my shoulders. So I'm sure that the Holy Spirit convicted me about my sin because I didn't believe in him. And about righteousness in verse 10, because why? I'm going to the Father where what? Now think about this verse for a second. If Jesus were right here in this room right now, or not, well, not here because we're not tempted to really do anything bad here. Think about when you, whatever your sin that you've struggled with in the past, whether it's, maybe it's gossip, maybe it's talking bad about people. Um, you, know, you get with your girlfriends and you start talking, and, hey, you know so-and-so, bless her heart, and you do your deal, right? Or, or, if it's, or if it's pornography addiction and you're, and you're in front of that computer and you're sitting there and you, you want to look at something that you know you shouldn't look at. Or, um, or maybe it's uh, uh, acting in an inappropriate way with someone you're not married to. Maybe it's just a conversation. Just, I'm talking about the beginning part of sin, not even the, just, just that desire that creeps in, right? What do you think it would be like if literally the Son of God was sitting right next to you while you were there, while you were there. Do you think you would be tempted? Probably not. It would probably be pretty easy not to look at pornography on the on the computer. If literally I was sitting in a chair right next to Jesus and we're talking, I'm like, hey, well, hold on a second, I'm gonna check this out. I'm not gonna do that. Why? <laughs> the Son of God right next to me, right? That's called righteousness, by the way. I'm living righteously. I'm not. I'm I'm I'm, I'm doing things to glorify God as opposed to getting on there and and perverting my mind and, doing, and, and indulging in perversions. The reason why is because Jesus is right there with me. I can see him. But he says, look, I'm, I'm leaving. But he says, I'm not going to leave you alone. So just like Jesus is sitting there with you now with the indwellment of the Holy Spirit, we have something else. We have the, 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 uh, another, the other person of God living in us, telling us about reality. Do what? Well, yeah, because he is actually with us all the time. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, you think about Jesus when Jesus was here, going back to the conversation I had with Joanne. Yeah, Jesus was confound, confound to space and time. And so Jesus was in a humiliated state. Read Philippians chapter 2. You know, Jesus was, I mean, he wasn't just out. If he performed a miracle or did something incredible, he did it. He had to call on the Father and had to have the Holy Spirit to do it because he was confound to space and time. He didn't know everything. Jesus did not know everything. Think about that. When they asked him, they said, when's the end, when's the end time going to be? What do you say? Oh, the Father knows that. Why? Because he was in a humiliated state. He was in a state of, of, of humiliation, and which is one of the most incredible things about our, our, our faith, by the way, the fact that God would humble himself that way. Not just the death part, but just the whole thing about being confounded to space and time and and his and Jesus and then the Son is is uh, is is um, omnipotent and he's omnipresent and he's just like uh, just all the attributes of God. But in, when he was in the incarnate uh, Jesus, he was limited, which is a, a pretty powerful idea to think about. But then he goes on. So this will be the sanctification. This whole thing about righteousness that this Holy Spirit's gonna he's gonna convict the, uh, the world to be wrong and sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people don't believe in me about righteousness because I'm going to the Father. You can't see me any longer, but he's going to be there with you. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Look, at the end of, the, at the end of time, the father of lies, the prince of the world, he's destroyed. He's gone. Father of lies is gone. We're free from the presence of sin. So what you see is you see the Holy Spirit applying salvation in terms of justification, in terms of uh, sanctification, and in terms of glorification. So when we went back last week, we talked about different roles where, where the Father is the planner of salvation. He planned it. And then Jesus acted it out. Well, the, the Spirit is the one that's applying it to us. He's the one that's indwelling us. He's applying salvation to us. He says, i got a lot more to say about this, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit, verse 13, this is a key verse, when he, the spirit of, this, you see this word over and over again, the spirit of truth comes, what's he going to do? Into all truth. When he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Well, what is truth? It's, my, it's when my thought matches up with reality. So what's he saying there? Is he telling me that the Holy Spirit's going to tell me how we can reconcile quantum mechanics with Einstein's general theory of relativity? I don't think so. What he is telling me, though, is that the Holy Spirit is going to tell me about reality. Now, this is incredible because you know what it does? Yeah. That's the thing you draw too. I think it's interesting the sanctification deal. Every one of these examples here that he promises to bring the power and provide it. It's not a function of just saying, uh, well, getting wet, being baptized. Every one of these, he'll give to us if we obey him. Mm-hmm. That's the key. We can talk about him over the wall, but we're not going to get this spot of power. And of course, Second Timothy talks about the power. The spirit is not one of timidity, but the power, mm-hmm. the power of, to, of self-control. So there's so much that we have, whether we sit in front of that, or whatever it is in our life, uh, but it still is not going to come until we approach Him. And then He says, if you do, I'm moving in with you. Yeah. If, you if you accept me and you obey me, but that's a big step for most of us. Yeah. Talk the game, but until we 
Well, it takes a, it takes a lot of um, well, it takes trust. What were we talking about when you first came in here? That he's not lying to you. And the James says, you know, we, I, I was I talking with Phil about this the other day. Um, he says that the evil one is it was telling me that is responsible for basically all the evil in the world, and, and and some of that's true. But you know, James says that each one is dragged away and enticed by his own evil desires. So we're participating in this evil stuff too. So there's some, we got some narcissism going on here where we want to be God, going back to what we talked about last week with the bubbles up here where I showed we want to get outside of our existence. But yeah, so. Yeah, fear and trembling God. Yeah. Well, I want you to, to, to uh, and, and Randy kind of hit on this um, about God's reality. In verse 14 and 15, Right after he says the spirit of truth comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. I think he gives us a glimpse of what that truth is. He says, he will glorify me again, right? Showing the, the triune God, how he works, each, each person glorifying the other. He, the spirit, will glorify me because it, because it is from me that he will receive what, what he will make known to you. Okay, what's he going to make known to you? All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the, uh, the spirit will receive from me and he will make known to you. And we're going to find out later what that means is, is that, that he's, he's making God known to us. He's making God known to us. And, and this isn't just a head knowledge. This is a knowledge of trusting and believing that God's telling me the truth about reality. It totally changes our, and I won't, well, I'm not going to get there yet. Let me, let me, let me finish John 17 and then we can take a break. Um, so when you, when you move over to John 17, the uh, first part, uh, uh, let's go to verse 17. After, at John 17, 17. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Now again, you find this glory fest going on with inside the triune God. He just said the Spirit's going to glorify Him. And now Jesus is actually praying that the Father will glorify Him. Glorify your Son. And here's the reason why. So that your Son may glorify you. You see this picture of glory right here? This is what glory looks like. Each person within the triune God glorifying each other 100%. For you granted him authority over all the people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now, again, notice the Father glorifying the Son so that the Son may glorify the Father. Now, this is eternal life, verse 3. Now, this is eternal life right here. This is what the Holy Spirit's going to make known to us. That they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And this is done through the Holy Spirit. So, when we talk about this knowledge, like head knowledge does puff up. But there is a, we, we cannot take this view of faith where we basically or essentially say that it's unknowable. Because of this verse right here. The entire point is that God may be known to us. That's eternal life. Eternal life is that we know God, the only true God, in Jesus Christ. Key word is know. Verse 4 says, I brought you glory on earth. Again, Jesus bringing glory to the Father. By finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, he's saying, requesting glory for himself here. He's saying, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Jesus prays for his disciples. Then he says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out to the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. And they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given comes from uh, everything you've given me comes from you for I gave them the words you gave me 
And they accepted them. Going back to what Randy was talking about, we have to accept. We have to accept this. We can reject it. Uh, if we don't accept this, God will not override your free will to make you accept it because he wants a relationship with you. And if he forces you to accept it, you didn't choose it. And if you didn't choose it, that's not a relationship. That's a robot. God's not looking for androids. He's looking for relationship because he is a relationship. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I remain in the world no longer. This is, all, this, is, this is the apex right here, guys. After all those three chapters of him telling him that he's going to leave. Now he's about to leave. He's about to be killed. He says, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The name that you gave me. So that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and I kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one that was doomed to destruction so that the scripture will be fulfilled. Talking about Judas. But I'm coming to you now and I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may be, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. And my prayer is not that you take them out of the world but, but that you protect them from the evil one. Well, what does the evil one, what does he do? He lies. Protect them from the evil one, the liar. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And, and here's, the, here's the crux. Saint, verse 17, John 17, 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For, I, for, for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified that they too may be truly sanctified. So I want, you to, I want you to consider this. That the entire purpose, I won't say the entire purpose, one of the, the major purpose of, of the Holy Spirit was what Jesus said. To be the revealer of truth. To tell us the truth about reality. We are sanctified by that truth. We are released from the power of sin over our, our lives when we understand the truth about the world and the way it really is. I'm going to give you this one thing and then we'll take about a 10 minute break. This will totally change the way you live your life spiritually. Because no longer when I'm at Walmart and I use lust as an example because a lot of men struggle with lust. So a woman walks by who's not your wife and she's dressed in a very provo provocative way and you may be tempted to lust after this woman. Now, the begrudging way of submitting to God would be to look at, look at the woman, you notice her, but then you turn your head and you say, that's not right, I'm not going to look at that, that's not right. And, you, and boy, you just grind it out, I'm, just, I'm not looking, I'm not looking, I'm not looking... And you're, you're, you're fighting this spiritual battle that you're not going to do this thing that you know is wrong. There's days I'm, that's tough to do. It's hard to keep that up. You've got to have a lot of energy to keep that up, right? The new way, according to what Jesus is saying, is this way called sanctification. I want to be released in the power of sin. I don't, want to, I don't even want to want that. So what do I do? Instead of saying that it's wrong, what if the Spirit's telling me that's not true? 
What do you mean? That's not going to fulfill you. You see the difference? It's not that it's wrong. It's that that's not going to fulfill you. That is a lie. Zach, let me show you what that really looks like. And then we, now let, let me imagine in my mind if I was to able to go seduce this woman or whatever that would be. And then and now I'm looking at my, my son, Max, and he's got tears rolling down his face because daddy's got to move out because mom caught him with another woman, blah, 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 blah. You know the story. You've seen it a hundred times. People, families getting broke up. It's not that appealing when you see it for what it really is. The spirit, as we submit to God, he reveals that kind of stuff to us. And he's peeling back the layer of the onion. And the deeper he goes, the deeper he gets in my life, guess what? The more fulfilled I become. So joy actually comes from submission to God. So let's take a 10-minute break. We'll come back and, and start, start with sanctification. So um, going back to this topic on sanctification, um, and really what, what we're told here. Is, is that we need to transition our, our thinking in terms of holy living. And this is how it reconciles this whole idea about works-based salvation. I'm not doing these things to be saved. I'm not, I'm not being faithful to my wife just to, just to fulfill some command that God gave, some arbitrary command. This is a word we need to remember, arbitrary. None of God's commandments are arbitrary. You know, the old way of looking at it is, I say the old way, the faulty way of looking at it, is that God is sitting up in heaven and he says, you know what, I'm going to come up with a bunch of arbitrary commands to give my creation and I'll, I'll use that as a test of their loyalty. And if they prove loyal, if they can follow these arbitrary commandments that I've, I've set for them, um, then, then I'll let them in. By arbitrary, I mean, it, it's just, he could have he picked anything. He just threw it on a wall, whatever. Oh yeah, that sounds good. There's no like real reasoning behind it. It's just random, uh, huh? Yeah. So like for example, let's take uh, let's take monogamy, or let's take uh, you know, let's take monogamy for example. When when Jesus tells us, uh, uh, or, or you know, we're commanded not to commit adultery. Uh, there's a reason why that's in there, and we know that one because in Malachi it says that one of the reasons why God hates divorce is because He seeks godly offspring. So he set up our structure. The way reality works is, is when you're self-seeking and you're out there using other people for your own gratification, it hurts your relationship. Okay, all these commandments, all of them, the purpose of them, you know what it is? It's to bring glory to God. Now, by bringing glory to God, what do you experience from last week? Remember? Joy. The only way to experience joy is to bring glory to God. So all these commandments are ways that we bring glory to God, and by doing so, we experience joy. When I look at the woman in a lustful way at Walmart, I'm not experiencing joy. In fact, I had a guy come to me uh, yesterday evening, wanted to talk to me, um, and, I, and this is another way I think the Holy Spirit works. I think he guides us um, in certain circumstances he speaks to us in little nudges when he knows we need to be in certain places at certain times. Um, I'm super busy right now. I've started a new company up. You know, I'm, I'm still kind of involved in some of the stuff I was doing before politically. And I just, I got a lot of things going on right now. And this guy calls me up. It's like 530 and he's wanting to talk to me. And I've got to be somewhere at 7 or I forgot the time. I may have the times messed up. But he, and I, he, hey, what's going on, Zach? I just wanted to talk to you. I said, well, let's get, how, how about we get together tomorrow? He said, oh, that's fine, man. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. And I know it's like a voice said, no, 
you need to tell him to come over now. I said, I'll tell you what, I got 30 minutes, man. I, I, if you, if you come over, let's have a cup of coffee. So I'll be there in five minutes. So he showed up at my house. I, I brewed some coffee, made him, a, made him a little gumbo. You got to feed him. If you feed him and give him coffee, though, you know, they feel relaxed. I had the fire going. So I said, sit down, man. Let's talk. What's going on with you, brother? And I hadn't seen this guy in a while. And, I mean, it wasn't two minutes in the conversation. He starts spilling beans. He's over, overwhelmed with guilty feelings because he's, he's married, but he's back into pornography. Wife doesn't know it. He's addicted to pornography. And we've had this discussion before. He's totally pulled himself away from the body. Um, and he's completely miserable. He's miserable. And I'm like, are you, are you experiencing joy in your life right now? He goes, I'm as miserable as I've ever been. And by the way, this is something that is very common. Not common, it's inevitable with porn addiction, video game addictions. It leaves you completely empty and you have this meaningless existence. And he said, I feel like my life doesn't have any meaning. And I said, well, living like that, it doesn't. But your life does have meaning, but you're believing in a lie that's not true about reality. And And I went through this whole thing about sanctification through the Holy Spirit. Now, you don't get there overnight. I don't wake up one day and not have a desire for anybody but my wife. I don't, you know, I don't wake up one day and not desire to not, I, I only want to build people up. I don't want to, I don't want to get back and complain and, 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 and be a backbiter. You don't just wake up one day without that desire. It's a process of progressive sanctification. And your contribution to it is a term Schaefer will talk about, is active passivity. Active passivity. All I do, I don't, I don't be better. I don't go out there and be, be a better person. That's, that's the biggest joke on the planet. I'm like, you just got to be a better person, man. You can become a Christian, be a better guy. You got to do better. I, and I, I'll sit in these sermons, and it drives me nuts to hear these. I call them do better sermons. Like, just do better. Pray more. Go to church. I'm like, I've tried all that. <laughs> it don't work, right? The more you try, read Romans 7. And Paul's like, I mean, I, I can't do it. The more I try to do good, the more bad I do. And it's just a big cycle. It's a big mess. It ain't about doing better. You don't do better. That's the whole point. Your contribution is just Active passivity. I just yield. I just raise the empty hands of faith to God. And it's not about what I do anymore. I'm not doing anything righteous. All I'm doing is, when God says that's not true, I'm saying, okay, I believe you. That's all. That's it. That's holy living right there. God says, that's not true. The Holy Spirit tells you that. He guides you into all truth. That's not reality. You're looking at something that's not real, Zach. Trust me. All right, I believe you. Think about these teenage girls, for example. And we work with a lot of them at the university. And these image issues are just overwhelming in our culture, guys. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And they really believe that they can look like these girls in the magazine. And you've seen all the, the little uh, the Dove commercial where they take the Photoshop and they got some girl that's, you know, attractive, but she's just not like... They take it, they, they trim her waist out, they take some eraser and they erase her little love handles and they pump her breast up and they put the, they get her cheekbones a little higher and they, they do all this stuff with airbrushing and next thing you know, this woman looks totally different and she is drop dead gorgeous. 
but almost in an unnatural way, like it doesn't even exist. No one has that figure. And what Satan is telling us is, no, you can have that figure. And the Holy Spirit's like, that doesn't exist. And even if it did, it's not going to fulfill you. And our role is simply to step back and say, okay, I believe you. When you mentioned earlier, Joanne, about belief, it's not, it's not saying I believe, I believe you like I believe there's a, a, I believe, uh, there's a chair, but it's, it's I believe that someone, a person, is telling me the truth. I believe Zach when he said he had this microphone here. I trusted him. In the same way, I shouldn't, and I, and I knew he was telling me the truth. I mean, now over time, if he kept lying to me, I said, dude, I don't believe you. But God never lies. Everything that he tells us is truthful. So as he tells me truth, I just, I'm passive in it. I'm just actively passive. I'm just yield. Okay, I believe you. And I'll walk away from that because he's already told me. Now, the first time it might be difficult because I've trained myself to think this is where fulfillment comes from, right? This is where fulfillment comes from. Therefore, I'm going over here because I've always gone over here. Well, have you been fulfilled? Well, no. Well, stop going over there. Are you sure? Yeah, stop going over there. But stop going over there. All right. And you go away. The next time it comes up, you go away. The next time it comes up, you go, and you keep active, this active passivity keeps on and on, and you're just yielding to God. Okay, I believe you, I believe you, I believe you. And to the extent that you do that, to the extent that you trust that God is telling you the truth, what is sin? Calling God a liar. So the opposite of that, righteousness would be, I believe God's telling me the truth. To the extent that I believe God's telling me the truth will be the extent to which I am fulfilled and experience joy. Because I'll, I'll, I'll be giving God the glory by believing Him about where joy comes from. The opposite is also true. To the extent that I believe the evil one and my own evil desires about the lie, to the extent that I believe that will be the, the extent to which I'm not joyful and that I'm miserable. So it's, it's just either going this way or this way. My mom always used to say, if there's a white dog and a black dog fighting, which one would win? Everybody always says the white dog because they think that's the good dog, but no, it's the one that you feed the most. That's the same way when it comes to our, 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 spiritual, our spiritual walk with God and, our, and our, our quest for joy, which really is only gained through our quest for God. That's why John Piper has a great blog called Desiring God. I love that. I love the title of that because everything that he teaches on is about how we can transform our desire or how the Holy Spirit rather transforms our desires away from sin and to God. How do we desire God? This is what sanctification is all about. Sanctification, to be made holy. That's the cliche we've always used. But what does it mean to be made holy? I don't think we have a real understanding of what this means in the church anymore, and so I want to dive into that some more. As I, we've kind of already hit it pretty deep. The goal is to always know God and to bring glory to Him. So sanctification is being freed, as I mentioned earlier, from the power of sin. So uh, when you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 through 8, it says that it is God's will that you should be sanctified. So this is something that God actually wills. This is what He plans for you. To be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Well, why? Oh, well, it's not fulfilling. It's not bringing glory to God. Therefore, it's not fulfilling. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy, giving glory to God, and 
honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. They don't know God. The goal is to know God. And in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects the instruction doesn't reject it from a human being, but from God, the very God who gives you what? So you see the correlation here between the Holy Spirit and sanctification is undeniable. It's undeniable. You cannot separate the two. The sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19 through 24 says, Do not quench the Spirit. We're going to talk about that. We're going to have a whole class on quenching the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all and hold on to what's good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you. Here's this word again. Through and through. So this is a layered thing. It's just, I mean, he's just going deeper and deeper and deeper to the extent that you trust him. Who does it? The Holy Spirit. Because may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you to be faithful. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. So again, he said, don't, don't quench the spirit. Let the spirit do its work. Let him do his work by sanctifying your soul, sanctifying your spirit cleaning you up, releasing you from the power of sin. 2 Thessalonians chapter... Uh, I don't know if this is right. I have 13. I don't think that's right. Let me see what I got here. I'll just read it. It's verse 13. I don't know what chapter it is. Um, verse 13 uh, and 14. Uh, but we, I think it might be... Uh, let me, chapter 2? All right. But we always think... But 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 we we always uh, but we ought to always thank God for you brothers and sisters loved by the Lord because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through what of who the sanctifying see you can't separate sanctification from the Holy Spirit the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and through belief in what you see how that works. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and through belief in the truth. What truth is that? It's the truth that the Spirit of truth gave me. Well, why did he give it to me? Well, Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. You see, all this works together with John 14 through 17. All these verses on sanctification work together in that. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory. So we, we want to share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In First Peter um, one one it says Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect this first Peter one one to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Asia and then list several cities who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through again the sanctifying work of what. Of the Spirit. You can't separate it. To what? Be obedient to Christ Jesus. Sprinkle with His blood. Christ and peace be, with, uh, be, be yours in abundance. So my obedience to Christ through the Holy Spirit is basically saying, it's, it's this active passivity. It's me just saying, I believe you. Okay, yeah. It's my son. When my son goes to touch the hot stove, and I say, 
Fred, don't touch the hot stove. You'll burn your hand. If he, if he trusts me, what's he going to do? Yeah, he's going to obey me, right? Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to burn my Now, but if he's a, if, like a lot of kids do, they don't believe, they don't believe you. Or they're rebellious. I won't touch it. Shh. But what do they do when they touch it? They burn their hand. And what, the, what does the parent always say? I told you so. You didn't listen. Romans 15, 16. Romans 15 and 16. Romans chapter 15. We'll actually start in verse 14. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and, and, uh, and competent to instruct one another. Yet I've written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me priestly duties of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by what? The Holy Spirit. You cannot separate this work of sanctification from the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7 through 11. The very fact that you have lawsuits, and this is speaking to the context of a church that has got a lot of issues. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. You've already been defeated, he's saying. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you cheat yourselves and you do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Now, when you talk about deception, what does that mean? You're believing in what? A lie. So going back again to this whole, what is sin? Saying God's a liar. The whole thing is built on truth versus lie. And what he's saying is, believe the truth. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the slanderers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you, huge word here, were. Now you think about that for a second. I think Phil quoted this verse and got him in a little bit of trouble. But they didn't put that last part in there, did they? They didn't put that in the GQ article. Now, that's pretty powerful. Now, Jill, my wife, wrote a, a blog article, um, and she simply said, look, she said, we've had countless people in our living room sit on our couch and tell us their stories of healing from the Holy Spirit. Some of them were homosexuals that, by their own admission, were healed. They were homosexual. Some of them were sexually immoral. Some of them were drug addicts and heroin addicts. And, uh, man, BuzzFeed, uh, the, was a BuzzFeed website, they got a hold of that, and they just, they just blasted Jill during the campaign. And, uh, of course, at first it was kind of, she was all upset about it. I was like, yes, we've got them mad now. That's good, right? And uh, ended, ended up making Richard Dawkins even mad at me, and he wrote an article in Time Magazine, which was kind of like the highlight of the campaign for me to, to have Richard Dawkins come out after me. That's big time. You know, he's the world's leading atheist. But I don't think what they understood, what Jill was saying, uh, they, they wrote that, that, that my wife has cured homosexuals on her couch, which kind of sounds bad. But that's not what she said. What she said was actually true. We have had 
people in our home who have told us their stories of healing. I think it's pretty incredible that our God is so powerful that you think it would be the, something that you could be in such bondage to that you can be released from it, that you can be healed from the power of sin. Now, we've been accused as Christians of being, what's the word? Anybody know the word I'm going to say? Hypocritical, judgmental, right? What's more judgmental? To say that you can't change or to say that every person on the face of the planet at the foot of the cross is the same. Fallen individuals that need to be redeemed and then later restored. Is that judgmental? That's a message of hope. And I don't, I'm telling you, if, you if, if people will be honest with you, people aren't going to just come out and say this publicly, but, but when you sit down and you see the pain, when you, when you work with people enough, and I know some of you in here have, when you work with, with individuals that are really broken, um, a lot of that facade that you see in public, it's not like that when someone's bearing their soul. When you see brokenness in the way that, 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 that I've witnessed it in, in, in the last 10 years of doing ministry, it's not something that people brag about when, when they're in that moment of despair. And they talk about things that happened to them in their past, like this little girl that came in one day and uh, her, her boyfriend, matter of fact, was at my house for a Bible study one night. And I'm not sitting there like, I didn't know this guy's story. I'm just, we're having this uh, apologetical study about the existence of God. And, and this, this, at the end of it, we're just talking about life. And just, yeah, what's your family like? You know, I'll get to know this kid. He's uh, 18 years old. He collapses on my living room floor and, um, and, and literally is, is weeping like I've never seen a man weep, okay? And so I'm sitting there like, I mean, he's got a beard, I got a beard, and Jill's like, like nudging me to go hug him or something. I'm like, I, just, I got a beard, he's got a beard. I don't know if that's going to work. But I was like, I got up at the nudging of my wife, who was probably being nudged by the Holy Spirit. I went up there, and I just grabbed this dude. I just wrapped my arms around him. I got on the floor with him. I wrapped my arms around him. And I'm just, he's just like shaking. You know, he, I, don't, I, I don't know why, but I knew, I kind of knew what he was fixing to tell me. And he, get, he lifts his head up, and he says, I got to tell you something I've never told anybody before. And I mean, you probably know what he's fixing to tell me, right? Uh, when he was 15 or 16, he was with an, a, a man who was about 40, and the man basically, to make a long story short, molested him. And so, you know, he's carried this guilt for three years and this shame for three years, and there's other things I won't tell you because I don't want to divulge who the guy is that if I gave you more information, you might go put the pieces together. But, but he, he's wondering, am I gay? He didn't tell me that at the time, but I knew that's what he was thinking. And so I said, hey, why don't you come out to the house tomorrow and do some work? So we come out to the house tomorrow. He helps me do some work, and we start talking about stuff. And, and I took a lighter, and I actually called one of my friends who's a therapist in, in, um, at Capstone up in Arkansas, and the guy's great. He said, this is what you need to do, Zach. Get a lighter. And I did this. I get out there, and I lit, and I, I lit the lighter. I said, I want you to hold your hand over this lighter for, for 30 seconds. And so the kid's like, He's looking at me, eyes wide open, and he can't quite reach his hand out. <laughs> he's like, I don't know if I should do that. You know, he wouldn't do it, obviously. I said, hey, what's wrong with you? 
He said, man, that hurt. That burned me. I said, why would that hurt? He said, because my body's made that way. He said, so your body's made to respond to pain. So you touch, a, you touch something that's hot, and it sends a, a signal in your brain. I said, he said, yeah. And I said, do you know that your body is also made to respond to sexual stimuli? And I said, and that's what happened when you were molested. I said, and, you're, and that doesn't mean you're gay. I said, your body responded like your body was designed to respond. I said, that's, you're not gay because you were molested. And it was like, he's, he just, I mean, you could just see it. I, mean, I could see it just lifted off of his shoulders. And he was like, I'm not. And the shame was gone. And so then he brings his girlfriend over. And, and, they, and they were being, I mean, there's, and then she tells her story, you know, six months later about how she was raped every night when she was five years old by her mom's boyfriend and never told anybody. And she's 18 years old now. And I couldn't figure out, why would this girl not look me in the eye? She just her head down. I mean, yes, yes sir. Yes. She would not look at me, did not trust me. And I said, I've never done anything to you. I've been nice to you. What's up? But that's what it was. She didn't trust men, and rightly so. Would not talk to me. I joke with her now. I'm like, you are the loudest mouth person in this minute. <laughs> She's taking the talking ear off now. And she talks trash to me. And we have a good time. We're back and forth. And, I, and I'm, I'm seeing how God has taken this and he's healed it because he's, what's happened is they're submitting to the Spirit in the same way that we talked about. And God's teaching them about reality. He's showing them the way the world really is. And they're experiencing, experiencing a substantial healing in their life. This is what sanctification looks like. And now I really believe that these two will break a cycle of family destruction that was set many years before them. They'll break it. The cycle of sin with their family will be broke. And I believe that they'll have kids that will love the Lord and their kids will not go through what they went through because they've made a choice, an active passivity to yield to the Holy Spirit because they're believing not what the lie is, but what the truth is. Hebrews 10 says, if we deliberately, this is 10, 26 through 31, if we deliberately sinning, deliberately keep on sinning after, after what? After we have received the knowledge of truth. Now remember that thing we read up here a while ago. If we, we get the knowledge of truth. Now, now, I'm, now I'm one of these people being sanctified. And by the way, I'm being sanctified too. I don't want to stand up here before you like I've arrived. I'm, God's cleaning me up still too. And I've got my own perversions and, and, and issues as well like anybody else does. And when I say the word perversion, I mean a distortion from what it was originally intended to be, right? When God made everything in the beginning, he said it is good. Now in the fallen world, we are all living in a state of perversion. We're not what we were originally intended to be because of sin. That helps me. Because I can't look at people now in a way like, oh, you're that. Because guess what? I'm that. And you're that. And he's that. And we're all that. And we need to be restored. And, and when the Holy Spirit, when he gives us that, that knowledge, if we continually keep on sinning, deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of truth, There's no sacrifice for sin left. That's it for you. But only a fearful expectation 
of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Now, why is that so? Well, anyone that rejected, verse 28, the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? This is in Hebrews chapter 10. So... When you think about why the Pharisee, why Jesus said, why is blasphemy the unforgiven sin? Well, this is what he's talking about. You're insulting the Spirit of grace who's delivering truth to you. You, Especially after you've received it, you're like, I'm rejecting that. I don't want it. No, for we know him who said it's mine to avenge and I repay it again. The Lord will judge his people. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We're sanctified by this Holy Spirit and by the blood of the covenant. And when we treat this as an unholy, when we, when we trample on this part of salvation, the, the end result of this, the logical conclusion, if it goes unrepented, is a total rejection of truth, which is a total rejection of the Holy Spirit. And you can't be a Christian if you don't believe in Jesus and put your faith in Him, but guess what? You can't be a Christian if you don't believe in God the Father either. If you say, oh, no, God the Father, I'm not with Him, but I am with Jesus. You think you'd make it to heaven? <laughs> no, I don't think so. And in the same way, because the Spirit is also God, we can't reject the Holy Spirit either. In fact, since He's the applier of, our, of, of, of salvation, we definitely can't reject Him. The Lord will judge His people it's a dreadful thing that falls into the hands of the living God. So what is life by the Spirit? There's no... Con- this is Romans chapter 8. I'll turn to Romans 8. We'll spend, I think we're going to spend the rest of our time in Romans 8. Yeah, because I don't think we'll have time to get through tonight what I wanted to get through. Romans 8 is a great passage about, and, and I think Randy mentioned that in, in Timothy, but this Romans 8 kind of makes the same point about this, this spirit that we receive is not one of fear and timidity, but it's one of sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father, which I'll get into in a second. But, but there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. For the law of spirit, of the spirit of life has set you free. In Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, for, what, for so the spirit setting us free, so this is what life in the spirit looks like. For number one, we know it, it, it's freedom. For, for God has done... The reason why it's freedom, by the way, is uh, the reason why it's the, the spirit of freedom is in, in, uh, in, what is it, in 2 Corinthians, I think it says that... Uh, y'all may have heard that song that's out now. Uh, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You think, why is that? Why is there freedom there? Because sin is a joy kill. Okay? It robs you, it entraps you, it entangles you when I see reality for the way that it really is, there's some freedom in that. So when I mentioned earlier about kind of my own conversion experience and, and when I had that, that weight lifted off my shoulders, I, it, it was freedom. Now we could get into a whole discussion about the nature of freedom because some believe that freedom is the right to do whatever you want to do, which would be a guy like John Stuart Mill. But there's another form of freedom, which is godly freedom, which is the right to do what you ought to do. And in that, you experience joy. That's why it's freedom. You feel free from the power of that sin. 
You're freed from its grip. And that's what Romans 8 is all about. By sending His Son... Actually, back up. For God has, has, done, uh, has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His son, own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh... And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but what? According to the Spirit. So life by the Spirit is how we meet the righteous requirements of the law. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds, and this is, this, this is what I was going to transition into in a little bit, but we're not going to have time, is, is how this is, is directly correlated with your mind. Those who live, verse 5, according to the flesh, have their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What are the things of the Spirit? It's the, things about, it's, it's the truth about reality. I'm using my mind now. I'm, I'm, my mind is submitting to the Spirit by saying, I believe you and I'm going to trust you. Even if I don't feel it right now, I'm going to trust you that you're telling me the truth about the way the world really is. And what you're telling me is how to bring glory to God. And I believe you when you say that that's the only way that I'm going to experience joy. And I'm going to give glory to God because I know that's where fulfillment comes from is only in you. For to set the mind on flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Well, one reason why it's hostile to God is because you're saying, God, you're lying. You can't call someone a liar and not, ha- not be in hostility towards that person. You're hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. No, you're lying, just like Adam and Eve said. I'm not submitting to that. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if, the, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So going back to that passage in John 16, where he said he's going to convict the world about righteousness. That's what he's talking about right here. He's going to tell us the truth about how to be righteous and how to be in a right relationship with God. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, what do you do? You put to death the misdeeds of the body. And you will live. Now what does that mean for me to put to death the misdeeds of the body? This is again this active passivity that we talked about. This is me saying the misdeed of the body would be the girl over there, right? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to put that to death. By, by taking the thought captive, making it obedient to Christ, when the Holy Spirit tells me that's not reality, that's not real, I'm going to believe Him. And I'm going to submit to that. Why am I going to submit to that? Well, because I didn't receive a spirit of timidity. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, what are we? Children of God. He's our dad. 
For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. I'm not, I'm not begrudgingly following these commitments out of some fear that, oh, I've got to do this or God's going to send me to hell. But you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So when I read that, and the same thing in Timothy that Randy was talking about, same exact concept. When I read that, it tells me that being led by the Spirit means that I'm trusting God as if, because He is my dad. You know what a, what a life-changing event it was for me when, um, after I was a Christian and I went to Harding, and I was sitting in this conference with a guy named... Um, Adrian Hickman, I think he used to live here, coach here, and he's a, a therapist up there. I don't, I don't know the guy personally, but I, but um, I was, I was listening. He had this this conference called the Men of God Conference, and he's going through this these ten T's of being a dad: touch, tenacity, time. I remember, I remember. I was like, he said, it's not about quality time. So that's a myth. He said it's about quantity time. Dads, you need to be with your kids all the time. You spend time with them all the time. It's not about this whole idea around quality time. So that's a myth. Tickles. Um, I, I forgot all of them. Tickle your kids. And he had all these things. It, there was, I, mean, I remember like that conference. It was so awesome because I was sitting there thinking to myself the whole time. Everything he said, I was like, man, my dad did that. And I, I mean, like, now don't tell him I said this, but he was a really good dad. Gordon was. Uh, but he really was. I mean, he did all those things. Now, um, he spent tons of time with me. I remember whenever I was, uh, when I was in sixth grade and I was insecure and I was being picked on at school, man, my dad would take me on a walk at night. We'd walk for 30 minutes around the neighborhood. He would just pour into me because I'd go to school and get bullied. And then when I came back to the house, I'm just like, huh. you know, you, you, when you're bullied as a kid, it's pretty traumatic. And so my dad would just build me back up. And he would just tell me about a day when I, when I would look back at that and not, wouldn't care and, and he was right but he would build me back up he would build me back up and and so he's telling me all these things about what it means to be a good father and i'm just like man and i was so glad that i was raised the way i was raised and that my dad was that intimately involved with me and he was like that with all of our, all my siblings but then he made a point that rocked my world to the very foundation in a good way he made the correlation that this whole perfect dad, this great dad that he had presented that we need to be, he showed us from Scripture that this is the God that we serve. This is how he loves us. Now, I know how my dad loves me, and it's, it's unconditional to the point that sometimes I take it for granted. And, and I'll say things and do things that I know hurt him, and I just, but I know he's going to forgive me. He's my dad. You know what I mean? He loves me. Um, and I under, in that moment, I understood that if my earthly father loves me like that, and this may not be easy for everybody to see because not everybody had a dad like I had, but for me it was, it was transformational because understanding that if my earthly father loves me in this way, how much more does my heavenly father love me? 
and not just loves me, but more applicable to life on planet Earth, he has my best interest at heart. I know that my dad wants me to succeed in everything that I do. I know that I want that for my own kids. Man, I want him to practice music because I want because that's something I wish I could do better. And I want him to do this because that's something I, I, I want you to succeed at life. Because I, looking back at 37 years old, here's what I think: if you'll do these things and not make the mistakes I made, maybe you can experience life even to a fuller extent that I have. And we try to teach these things and pass them on to our kids. Our God is the same way with us. He wants us to experience life and live it abundantly. That's what He wants. He wants us to glorify Him, and that's how He knows that we will experience life to the fullest is by giving glory to Him. Why? Because that's how He's fulfilled by bringing glory to the other members of the uh, each one, bringing glory to the other mem- other members of the Trinity. He knows that, and He wants to impart that on us. So, um, Galatians chapter five is pretty much right in line with what we just read in Romans chapter 8 uh, when it talks about the acts of the simple nature and it talks about like not living like putting to death those acts of the simple nature and being led by the spirit and something interesting I'm not going to read it all because we don't have a lot of time um, but when he talks about this whole being set free and keeping in step with the spirit um, he says I, I say walk by the spirit you won't gratify the desires of the sinful nature and, and what he said in Romans 8 was You'll put to death the misdeeds of the body because you have the spirit of sonship now where you're trusting God as a father. By him we cry, Abba, Father. It's not about fear and timidity. It's about trusting. For the desire, desires of the flesh are, are against what the spirit desires. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to one another. But if you're led by the spirit, you're under the law. And he goes into this, these uh, different types of sins that we are to avoid because we are trusting God here, saying, God, these are, or, or I believe you when you tell me these things won't fulfill me. And by doing so, you receive the fruit of the Spirit. I think it's improper to say, I do think this, and this is a deeper discussion. I think we're looking at the Scripture wrong when we say we've got to love better, we've got to be joyful, we've got to be peaceful, we've got to be patient, we've got to be kind, we've got to be good, we've got to be faithful, we've got to be gentle, we've got to have self-control. I think that these are fruits of the Spirit. I think this is the fruit when we are actively being, this active passivity, I think this stuff emerges in your life. I can't be better. I can't be more patient. I've tried that. I've tried to get up and be, uh, do all that stuff. What it is is though when I, when I just believe God that all of a sudden the weirdest thing happens. I'm not like that guy that was in my house last night, miserable because he's addicted to pornography, I'm actually experiencing this thing called joy. Man, you know what? I'm actually kinder to people now. Man, I've noticed that as I believe God that I developed this thing called gentleness. These are, and consequently, I love. Notice the difference here. One is a humanistic way of teaching it, that we somehow accomplish our salvation, that we somehow contribute to it. The other is saying, no, even God even does the sanctifying work. Your only contribution is obedience, active passivity. I believe you, God, and I'm not going to touch that because I believe you're telling me the truth about reality. And out of that, the fruit of the Spirit grows. 
So, I'm going to stop there. Um, next week, what I'm going to talk about is I'm going to go through and look at, uh, it's going to be more academic next week because we're going to talk about historically um, how we have arrived in, in our culture at a place where there is a divide between faith and faith and, and, uh, and, and knowledge and truth. And uh, I'm going to show you how, how it happened. Uh, we're going to go back to 300 years ago. We might go all the way back to 2,000 years ago. But I'm going to go through some of, the, some of the ways that it happened and some of the big movements in history that changed the way we think. And then um, when we understand how we fell, then after that we'll go back to the Scriptures and talk about how we allow the Holy Spirit to restore the way we approach knowledge so that we can know God, bring glory to Him. So let's pray real quick and then we'll, we'll end. Uh, dear Father God, we do thank you for another evening of, uh, of just studying your word. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through your Holy Spirit, Father, and just all the wonderful workings that have gone on in this church and in our life, Father, um, and the healings that we've seen happen over the years here, Father, and all the, the many blessings throughout the entire world, Father, that have been a result of your work here in our body, God. I do pray for continued growth, Father, both uh, both in, in, in growing the numbers of our church, Father, but in bringing more people to the saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, but also in, in the, the, that we grow deeper together, Father, that our bonds grow deeper together, and that we grow spiritually, Father, and that we experience that substantial healing that is promised um, through the Scriptures by your Holy Spirit, Father. We thank you so much. Thank you so much for Jesus, for his redemptive work on the cross the finished work that he did, God, that we are all accessing now, not only for, the, for our justification, God, but for our sanctification with the hope, Father, of one day being glorified with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation by Whitesbury Road Church. For more information, please visit wfrchurch.org.